You never want to be a boss. You always want to be a leader. And leaders pull. So walk over where you want to be and motion people to come that way. If they come, you're leading. Because it isn't about you as a leader. It never was about you as a leader. You're just in a position to take the first step. Hopefully others will follow. Don't underestimate your position where you are now and how God might use you. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Thanks for joining us on Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, and I am your co-host sitting here with the one and only Reverend Dr. Theology, also known as Michael Easley. You know only God is Reverend. Come on. Well, there are a lot of reverends out there. Only God is Reverend. Okay. Only God's awesome. Only God's Reverend. Let me keep a list of all the words I can't use. Pearls before (laughs) Well, folks, that was a great behind-the-scenes look at uh, (laughs) Michael and Hannah, daughter and father relationship. Yeah. uh Yeah. uh Well, we started a series of Nehemiah last week, and we are going to jump right in today. But, Dad, real quick, what I wanted to get, if I have never read the book of Nehemiah, I've never heard it preached on at church, what is a real quick 50,000-foot overview who who's Nehemiah and what's the story? Let's start this way. Nehemiah is called a cupbearer. That's a powerful relationship to the Persian king Artaxerxes. Jerusalem is in disarray. The walls down, the people are disposed. They have been in Babylonian captivity. In 52 days, Nehemiah is going to rebuild a wall, an impossible task. Hmm. And as this leader comes on the stage, we're going to see the heart of this guy do a leadership process, do what the people of Israel didn't think he could do, what his enemies wanted to stop him from doing. At the highest level, the book is about the centerpiece of the name of God as a place of worship has to be reestablished. And that's what Nehemiah does. Well, great. Well, let's jump into chapter one of Nehemiah and start talking about the leadership process. Long ago, God appeared to Abram, and he promised to make him a great nation. The lone, legitimate son of Abram would grow to world power. Not without peril, however. Yet the monarchy grew under Saul, David, and Solomon. However, by the end of Solomon's reign, the stench of sin was so pungent, God finally judged. In 1 Kings 11, verse 11, we read, So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, You have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Israel's history is long and checkered, but by 931 BC, Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam 
causes an impassable breach, resulting in ten northern tribes that pull away to become their own nation. They become Israel. The two remaining tribes are called Judah. I like to remember Israel in the north, I comes before J in the alphabet, Judah in the south. So for 209 years, there's unbridled idolatry and immorality that corrupt Israel's leaders. By 722 BC, God judged the polluted branch of Israel with the Assyrians to end the kingdom. In other words, God's going to bring an enemy people group in to take care of, to deal with the immoral Israelites. Judah's history will continue for 134 years longer, but ultimately it will also be judged and led to 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 17, we read, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. Think about that. And they had no compassion on the young man, or virgin, or old, or infirm. He, meaning God, gave them all into his hand, the king of the Chaldeans. All the articles of the house of the Lord, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And there they were servants to him and his sons under the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Derek Kidner writes this checkered story of the kings, a matter of nearly five centuries, ended disastrously in 587 B.C. with the sack of Jerusalem, the fall of the monarchy, and the removal to Babylonia of all that made Judah politically viable. It was a death to make way for a rebirth. I love the last line of Kidner's quote, it was a death to make way for a rebirth. Think of over five centuries of immoral, uh, unfaithful kings, the monarchy dissolving, the sack of Jerusalem, the loss of all the articles of worship. So for 70 years now, God shifts world powers from the Babylonians to the Persians and the Medes. A little bit of a history, a little bit complicated, but stay with me. Now, a thousand years before all this, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They were a family that grew into a nation, and eventually God set them free. Her long night in Babylon reduced the nation further, and they emerge as a small flock. And that's where the story of Ezra begins. Now, you've probably heard about pre-exilic or post-exilic prophets. Not to get too lost in the weeds here, but it's helpful for context. There are three different returns from this exile. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it covers about a hundred years, and it occurs over three stages. First, we have the struggle to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. Then we have the reform of Ezra, who's commissioned by the emperor. And the third and final one, which we're going to focus on in the book of Nehemiah, is the story of the movement of Nehemiah about 444 to 432 B.C. While Ezra led the people to rebuild the temple, It requires the protective walls of the city that were reduced to rubble to enable worship to happen in the city of God. So with all that lead in, we're beginning a new series 
on the book of Nehemiah. And the subtext is looking at the leadership process. How does God use a man? As we said in the last broadcast, this is not primarily a book about leadership. But certainly you cannot read the book without seeing how God uses Nehemiah's leadership skills, what we're calling the leadership process in the story of this one man who accomplishes a seemingly impossible task in an unbelievable time frame. Nehemiah 1 verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So out of these first three verses, the major theme of the book is set up. What is God up to? What is God teaching Israel? How is God going to use Nehemiah's story? And then very practically, what is God teaching you and me about how he uses us in a process? Think about this book opens with horrific news. Again, the the remnant is reporting back. They're in great distress, reproach. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed and the gates are burned with fire. The city is defenseless. The people are dispersed. And this this picture of the gates burned with fire is vivid because that was the primary entry in and out of the city, but it was also the primary protection for the residents inside and to keep evil people, the wrong people, from getting into the city, especially during the night. Well, the first major theme, which is of no surprise to any of us, is that God, the author, is sovereign. We've got this tiny remnant of people. How many nations have come back again and again when they've been on the verge of ultimate destruction other than Israel? In Nehemiah 9.6, he writes, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, the heavenly host bow down before you. He's sovereign. And no matter in the affairs of men and women, our life, the life of history, when horrific things happen, the believer needs to stop, take a pulse, and realize God is yet sovereign. Secondly, God is patient and he keeps his covenant. We don't think a lot about covenants today. We may talk about marriage covenants. But a covenant in the Old Testament was God cutting a covenant with man that he would keep his word if man kept his word. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 5, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserved the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, Nehemiah's prayer is going to unfold this loving kindness and covenant-keeping characteristics in some detail. But before we jump into that, a third principle right at the beginning is God uses people. Nehemiah 4.15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Jumping ahead a bit, but God's going to use not only Nehemiah, but many hands to be involved in this process. God uses individuals. The intriguing feature of the book is the absence of any overt miracle. But there are so many 
quote, miraculous things that occur by Nehemiah's faithfulness and people who followed his leadership to do what was seemingly impossible to rebuild this destroyed wall. God is going to accomplish his sovereign will through Nehemiah and a small handful of people called a remnant. So God is going to use a small group of people. In a way, we see God's great sense of humor. He's going to accomplish a seemingly impossible task with a small group of people to remind them he's after faithfulness, not multitudes. He's after people who will obey him no matter how slim the margin may be. He's going to use them. Well, God's people, this remnant, are also returning from exile. Again, let me go back a little bit. Ezra 6.21, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who separated themselves from the impurities of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord, the God of Israel, and they ate the Passover. So this return is a new era. We have the preservation of God's people and the separation of God's people from the idolatrous religions around them. This is a good place to think about our relationship with our country. I love our country. I hope you love our country. Yet we live in a very complex time full with all kinds of distractions that, I'm sorry to say, are idolatrous. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. And literally, it takes men and women of courage to say, I'm going to separate myself from those things. I'm returning to my relationship with Christ. I'm returning to my relationship with Christ's people. And I separate myself from the things that pull me away from that worship that lifestyle. Israel had the same issue. You know, Israel was forever building shelves for the idols of their heart. They would add again and again to these mantles, put up one more idol, one more remnant of the culture around them. And this was a time for the remnant to clean slate, to return, to separate from the idolatrous culture, and to go back to worship God the way he intended. All right, let me step back and give us a little framework for chapter one. That's a high overview of a little bit of a history and the first three verses. As the rest of the chapter unfolds, we call this Nehemiah's prayer. Once he hears the report of the remnant that is in great distress and reproach, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, which, by the way, the gates are noted throughout the book, and those gates are very important for their they're defenseless until those gates are reestablished and rebuilt. And then we have Nehemiah's reaction recorded in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Unfortunately, fasting and praying can become a fad like any other thing in the Bible. In the Old Testament, when people fasted, it was a sign of remorse. They would tear their clothes. They would put dust and ashes on their head. They would refrain from food for days. It wasn't the way we would uh, sometimes say today, well, I'm going to do a fast, just a liquid fast or whatever. Uh, This was a, a, a very visible form of repentance for sin. He sits down, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. Also, fasting in the ancient world freed up a lot of time because meal preparation wasn't as quick and easy as it is today. We think of skipping a meal uh, with, with no pause whatsoever. In antiquity, to skip a meal meant to free up hours of a day of preparation. So for them to fast meant they had more time uh, to not be involved with food preparation, but just praying brokenhearted before God. Derek Kidner 
comments that Nehemiah's natural bent, what we know from him, might have been a guy of swift, decisive action. So his response here is pretty remarkable, that he stops. For days he fasts and prays. And I think one of the glimpses we get in this leadership process is the heart of a tough leader at times takes a pause. When things are bad, you don't just rush to fix. You stop and you fast and you pray and you mourn and you weep. Well, in verses 5 to 11, which our friend Jason Germain has read for us, Nehemiah implores the God of heaven to help him. And the language is so rich, we wanted a great voice to read it for us. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. What is Nehemiah doing in this prayer? First of all, he implores the great God of heaven. Great and awesome, covenant-keeping, loving, kind toward his people. He speaks of fear, of the terror of his people. He's an awesome God. He's above all. He's a great and awesome God. Whenever you hear the word loving kindness, keep in mind two things. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. God loves to be loyal to his people and to his promises. That's his nature. And Nehemiah recalls who this God is. That's the kind of God we have. He's a loving, kind God. I often say it's the most important word in the Old Testament, God's loving kindness. And here he calls on the one who keeps the covenant and his loving kindness toward his people. The transition in the chapter where Nehemiah then begins to ask, and that starts in verse 8. Remember the words which you commanded your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name. There it is. We talked about that earlier to dwell. So they're scattered. They've been in exile. And Nehemiah prays, calling on God's faithfulness, his covenant keeping, his loving kindness. He says, if we returned, you promised us, Lord. You promised you would regather us if we came back and repented to the place where you chose to put your name. So Nehemiah is not asking anything that was out of the ordinary for God's character. He wanted him to do 
what his word had already told them he would do. Notice also, and if you read the chapter on your own, which I encourage you, the pronouns that he uses, your servants, your people, whom you redeemed, your great power, your strong hand, it's not as though God needed reminding that these were his people. It's he's reminding his people who is their God. God is your God. And as people would read this prayer and hear this prayer going forward, they would get the weight of that. Well, Nehemiah asked for success and compassion along the way. Verse 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and the prayer of your servants who you delight in to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. As the story unfolds, he's going to go before a man, Artaxerxes. He's going to go before a king, and he's going to ask an incredible request. The chapter ends on an editorial note. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Seems odd at first, but it's a great segue because it tells us the position of Nehemiah had. This wasn't simply someone who uh, sipped a cup of wine to make sure the king wasn't poisoned, although that may well have been the history of the cupbearer. He was an aide. He was a close ear to the king. We might call him somewhat of an advisor, but he was certainly in the inner circle of the Persian leader. Well, let's think about a number of lessons from this text about the leadership process. And in particular, here's a pretty rough and tumble tough leader, but we learned some things about him. Number one, he had the heart of a servant. It's striking how easy it is to miss these things, but if you reread chapter one, seven times you're going to see the word servant or servants in this first chapter. It's an attitude of submission. It betrays the leader's heart. He says, you know, I'm really not a leader. I'm a servant, and I'm a servant of God's people, not just the king of Persia, not the king of Artaxerxes, uh, not even some leadership position I might uh, aspire to. I'm a servant. It's one of submission. Secondly, the heart of a tough leader is one who owns his sin. Every time I read this chapter, I'm struck with the fact that he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded Moses. He owns the sin of his people. He's an expatriate in a sense. He's certainly in the capital in Susa. He's not in the land, but he owns the sin of the nation. We have acted corruptly. Third, a leader knows that prayer is no substitute for action. In other words, just because we don't go to work right away doesn't mean it's unimportant to prayer. Prayer is a relationship. Prayer is a beginning. And Nehemiah's prayer is well crafted. In fact, I believe that in the days of fasting and, and mourning and weeping, he's developing this prayer in his head. This didn't just spill out the first time he opened his mouth. This was a process and he thought about the situation. He thought about the destruction of the temple complex, the defenselessness of the nation, and the reproach of the people. And he wanted God to do something. And he knew in order for God to act, they had to be responsible. And so he prays to the God of heaven. The covenant language also reminds us of Nehemiah's knowledge of the word. He knows God's word. 
It's a good reminder for a leader to have a relationship with God and his word. We need to know the mind of God in print. And he calls on a great history theologically as well as specifically of how God dealt with his people, whether it was the law that Moses gave them, the place where the name was going to be established to dwell, and so on. He knew well the word of God. And finally, this tough leader maximizes his God and minimizes his position. It is, I think, intended for us to see a cupbearer not being a super important job. Yes, strategically placed, but he's still a servant to a king. In other words, Nehemiah wasn't part of the monarchy. He was a servant in a foreign kingdom, in a Persian capital in Susa, not one of God's nations, not not one of God's broken up monarchies and people groups. But he understands his God, and he also understands his position. The lesson there for you and me is pretty obvious. Don't underestimate your position, where you are now, and how God might use you. The God of heaven hears your prayer. The God of heaven hears the heart of a servant. The God of heaven hears one who owns his or her sins. The God of heaven knows that when we pray to him, uh, prayer is no substitute for action. Prayer is a relationship that begins our action. And the God of heaven delights in those who see their position, but know that he is their sovereign. Okay, a lot of information to take in, Dad, from chapter one of Nehemiah, but I loved your four principles at the end, and one that really stuck out to me that I know you and I have talked about a ton is this concept of servant leadership. Um, I know you have commented many times that servant leadership is something that really didn't come into the leadership vernacular until a couple decades ago, and then it was like everyone was talking about it. Yep. It's an interesting theory because some of the guests that we interviewed, some of our subject matter experts we went to, uh, gave us some great insight on what being a servant leader looks like. And we want to listen to some of them now. Yeah. So the first conversation that we want to pull in is with a guy that you may or may not have heard of named Dave Ramsey. If someone's never heard of Dave, dad, how would you describe (laughs) your friend? Dave calls himself a money expert. Uh, He employs uh, north of 600 people now, has an incredible business model where he helps people not just get out of debt, but understanding that debt is a form of bondage. And so God's using Dave in a remarkable way. He leads an incredible team. And uh, if you don't know Dave, you need to get to know him a little bit. But he was kind enough to give us some of his time and talk about servant leadership. So let's start with the young Dave Ramsey, what that meant, and how has that evolved as you are a servant leader? Well, I mean, I was running our little business in my early 30s and I had what 10 people on the team and I wasn't a leader I was a boss and so I'm going to leadership conferences and reading leadership books it's so long ago that the John Maxwell tapes were on cassette right okay so that long ago right and um, I remember hearing in some Christian thing I went to uh, that you're supposed to be a servant leader and I went uh (laughs) <laughs> I sign your check. I'm the boss. You're confused about that because I didn't hear servant. I heard subservient. And I knew that wasn't right. Uh, that didn't ring my truth bell, right? But once I understood that I'm actually serving my child by teaching them to brush their teeth, even against their will, 
I'm serving them by teaching them to have the discipline to study and get good grades. I'm serving them by teaching them to have self-control. I'm serving sometimes in my business by allowing someone the opportunity to work somewhere else. We say that we let someone go. Isn't that an interesting phrase? As if we had them held captive. You know, we let them go. They're free now. They weren't free before. You know, I mean, it's an interesting phrase we use. And it's, I was let go. Were you held captive? I mean, was it duct tape involved? You know, it's an, but I serve someone. And I, I can, I've been doing this so long now that I've had folks that were clearly not supposed to be here. Right. And now they're a world class dot, dot, whatever. dot, whatever. And uh, so I served them, literally, and, and I never did it unkindly or anything. But once I realized I was serving someone by not participating in their insanity, I'm serving someone by being strong, that it wasn't subservient, because I think leadership is all about the other guy. As, as a boss, as an employer, 600-some employees and growing, um, you're, you're leading these people. What does service look like? How do you serve them? And maybe the better question is, are we supposed to? I think we are supposed to serve them, but we're not supposed to be subservient. Okay. I think that's the difference. That's the whole crux of it for me. And all it means to me is, is I'm going to treat them like I'd want to be treated. I've got their interest at heart. And so what's the best thing for this young man I'm sitting here talking to, this young woman I'm sitting here talking to, this old man I'm sitting here talking to, whatever it is, what's the best thing in this horrible, messed up conflict that we're sitting here looking at? What's the best thing for that other person? Then I'm serving them by doing it, uh, then you're a leader because otherwise you are just a boss because leaders pull and bosses push. Years ago, I was talking to Fred Smith and we were talking about this notion of servant leadership and it was a small group of pastors, maybe five of us. And he said, if I asked you about your congregations, your church, your success, you would all have this, you know, tone language about, well, the Lord, this and the Lord that. And he goes, but in your leading, you're actually serving. And the first time I heard someone say it that way, hmm. that using the gift of leadership is, in effect, serving other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what's it look like pragmatically, real specifically? How, how do you serve people? You know, one of the things that came out around here was I, I, I was trying to be, uh, in a classic Southern passive-aggressive way, trying to be the nice guy in some settings and becoming ultimately frustrated with someone that wasn't behaving. But I never was clear with them. And other people in our organization that were leading were falling in that same trap. And so we stopped doing that. Um, Some people say we're brutal, but we're really not. We're just really clear because we figured out to be unclear and then be frustrated at the person and they don't even know you're frustrated is ultimately to be unkind. Right. And And so we we say to be unclear is to be unkind. So, you know, one way we serve is clarity. One way we serve is honesty. And uh, we don't brutalize people emotionally, but. They're going to hear the truth. Like, you know, you can't keep doing this. It's not going to work for you. You're not going to be here. You can't stay in that seat if you're going to keep doing this. And you got to be just very clear with folks. And that's actually ultimately very kind. Mm -hmm. Have you fired someone or let them go (laughs) and they've come back later and thanked you? I got a lot of thank you notes from people. One thing many, many, many years ago, a young lady had an affair and uh, let both of them go, obviously. She came back later and said it changed her whole life because mm. it led her into spiritual repentance uh, and, and so forth. The way that we compassionately dealt with it, we were kind, we were not judgmental, we didn't throw a Bible at her as she went out the door or something like that. We just said, you know, we told you ahead of time we don't do this here. 
and you you made a choice that leaves us no choice mm-hmm. and we're going to love you we're going to help you we're going to walk with you we're going to connect with your pastor we're going to you know walk with you as you go through this transition uh, other centered other centered and yet we still had to make a values based decision and so she comes back wrote me a long glorious beautiful letter uh, uh, that her whole personal spiritual walk was changed uh, because someone kindly enforced righteousness mm-hmm. anything else that comes to your mind that I haven't asked you about servant leadership. I just think it needs to be wrapped in strength. It's almost impossible to be gentle when you're weak. The only way you can be gentle is if you have the strength to be that. And so again, I, I just want to make sure that no one hears the way I did. You never want to be a boss. You always want to be a leader and leaders pull. So walk over where you want to be and motion people to come that way. If they come, you're leading. Interesting in Nehemiah's case, there's the passage where it talks about trowel in one hand and sword in the other. Mm-hmm. And so there's a time when you're, you got to be in the trenches with the folk mm-hmm. and the employee, so to speak, working alongside them, but you still have to be the one saying, this is what we're, why we're doing this. We got to protect the group. We're ready to fight. Mm-hmm. Interesting tension. Mm-hmm. And people don't think, especially in the Christian world, we don't think of fighting as serving. Uh, you know, in the South, we're supposed to be passive aggressive you know, and all this in our, in our Christianity. When someone takes on the consumer, for instance, we're consumer advocates. When someone's ripping the consumer off and I'm ripping into them on my radio show or something, that's serving because we're protecting. That's mm-hmm. a sword in the hand. Mm-hmm. And we're calling out, you know, something that is wrong. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. And to not call that out is weakness. It's not serving. We learn a lot from Dave in a really short span of time. Yeah. But one principle that stood out to both of us was when he said, It's almost impossible to be gentle when you're weak. The only way you can be gentle is if you have the strength to be that. And I think we get that confused as leaders. Hmm. You have this idea of bravado and strength and high D and all these other things that we use to describe being a leader. But there is a core that a leader has to have. And we see that in Nehemiah. He's this tough guy. He's a tough leader. But he also understands the balance between leading people, helping people, working side by side. And we're going to see as the text unfolds more of how he leads, even as a strong, tough leader, as a servant. I also want to play a piece of your conversation that you had with Janet Parshall. And before we jump into that, tell us about Janet. If someone's never heard Janet's show or know anything about her, tell us about Janet Parshall. Janet Parshall is currently the host of the Moody Radio Network program in the marketplace with Janet Parshall, which broadcasts on almost a thousand stations and outlets. She's been in radio and broadcasting for over 30 years, very articulate in policy and politics and issues that are close to the heart of American Christians. And she's been a good friend for many years. So we were thrilled that she was willing to jump in this conversation. So Janet really talks about the tension of not even wanting to be a leader, which just blows my mind because she is an incredible leader (laughs) in the world that she exists in on the Hill. And um, anyway, so let's take a quick listen to her thoughts on servant leadership. For years, I shunned that title. In fact, I often looked around within the church capital C Universal, and I say this humbly, but this was just my observation, that everybody was scrambling to be a leader but very few people wanted to be a follower. And so I thought, I think there's too much of a responsibility put on the shoulders of a leader. Let me be a follower. My role is to follow Jesus. I think I can make that transference in the church as well. 
well, as the Lord continued to put me in a position where leadership was being demanded of me, I realized that that idea of serving was the hallmark of a leader. If it's all about you and knowing Washington, D.C., it's a town full of egos, names, titles, plaudits, pundits, you know, first place at the restaurant, best places on the TV shows and the magazine covers, you really get this skewed perspective of what leadership is all about. But leadership says, I'm willing to take you to a place where you might not necessarily want to go, but I'm willing, if necessary, to sacrifice myself so that you can get there most of all. And that's a tough lesson for me to learn because it isn't about you as a leader. It never was about you as a leader. You're just in a position to take the first step. Hopefully others will follow all the while submitting to the one who taught us really and truly what leadership is. It's about being a servant. When you and I chatted with her, we could have just listened to her for hours. She just goes and goes and goes like, wow, can you just take over this whole thing for us? (laughs) (laughs) But what I love about her passion is this kind of interesting tension. There was a humility and, as you said, a reluctance to step into that role. But she's got such an articulate voice, a reasoned voice a logical voice in the subject, which again refers back to one of the principles we mentioned in the end of Nehemiah 1 is God uses individuals where they are. That's right. And here she had the courage to to push herself at some level to get into marketplaces, into audiences, into broadcasting, which is not always easy to push yourself into these roles. And yet she's using it for good and leading other people to think critically about their role as Christians. So another interesting conversation you had with Dr. Susan West, who is a vice president and chief of staff at Belmont University. I had the pleasure of working under Susan for about six years at Belmont. She's a remarkable leader, great communicator. But she also talked about the tension between leading and serving and following and has some interesting things to say about that. First of all, I don't believe you can lead until you serve. You have to First of all, be a follower before you can lead. You've got to be able to trust the folks that you work with and that work alongside you. Uh, And you've got to be willing and able and capable and competent to do the things that you ask them to do. Uh, There should never be anything in my mind that I would ask any one of the folks that I lead to do that I wouldn't or couldn't do myself. So, Dad, I think this is something hard for my peers that are in leadership roles, folks that are my age are now becoming middle management or or even upper management at this point. But this idea of we know that it's important to be in the trenches with folks that we're leading and we should never be asking someone to do something that we wouldn't do. But we've also we've done it. We've been in the trenches for 10, 12, 15 years in our careers. And now that we're leaders Should we always be getting down in the trenches with folks that we're leading? There's a balance between picking up some trash in the parking lot versus taking all day to clean the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And the attitude, I think, of a servant leader is willing to, I'm happy to get my hands dirty once in a while. I'm willing to do that. But they're not paying a leader to do jobs that aren't on your radar. That's the whole idea of leadership. Right. And are we willing to get our hands dirty? Are we willing to uh, do a cleanup day with staff at the campus sure. or the church or the office? Or we're going to pitch in and come in Saturday and do a project? Yes. But should we do that 
at the exclusion of our job of leading. So and I think most people get that. Most wow. people who work under others understand uh, the leader shouldn't be answering the phone all day long. Right. Yeah, perhaps he or she should hear what comes in on a phone call from time to time. Sure. But that's not their job. Mm. And so the role of that servant leader, it, it is a delicate balance if we're unwilling to once in a while get our hands dirty, that communicates a lot to people. Yeah. And so being willing to have sword and trowel, to being willing to get in the trenches, uh, communicates a lot. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot. Yeah. One of my friends, uh, when we lived in the D.C., Northern Virginia area, was a flag officer. He was a three-star general. And he would tell me, Michael, you have to raise the flag once in a while. <laughs> and what he meant by that was walk, MBWA, sometimes you hear that, management by walking around. You have to walk the halls, you know, put your head in the office and say, hey, how are you guys doing today? Ask a few questions, anything you need. And 99 times out of 100, they're never going to say anything they need. Sure. But the fact that the boss or the manager stopped by just to put his or her head in the door yep. and ask how they're doing speaks volumes hmm. to people. Uh, and we're not taking, quote, little people for granted. Right. They're just as important as we are as leaders. And to encourage them goes an awfully long way. Yeah, that's good. Well, we have other conversations to share, specifically on servant leadership, that we're going to use later in the series. But, Dad, as we're thinking about, okay, the context of Nehemiah, folks that are listening to this right now that are in some sort of leadership role, and they're sitting there thinking, how do I do this? How do I incorporate true servant leadership in what I'm doing with the people that God has entrusted to me? What What's one or two takeaways or questions or things that you would have them start thinking about? Well, if we look at the chapter as a whole, I would say, number one, there's a vertical component. When Nehemiah heard this news, his response was vertical. He mourned, he prayed, he fasted, he wept. That's a good reminder for any leader, no matter what we're facing. Mm. That relationship with Christ, our vertical relationship, is where it begins. Secondly, internal. Nehemiah took stock internally. We don't see all the specific details. We do get hints of it in his prayer, but in his mourning and weeping and praying and fasting, he's doing business with God internally and then horizontally. How does he deal with the people around him? So whether you're a man or woman in leadership, those are some pretty good prongs to come back to. My vertical relationship with Christ, Mm -hmm. my internal processing, what am I learning from the word? Am I willing to own my sin, to confess my sin, to ask for help, to find encouragement where I need it internally and then horizontally? How do I live that out among the people, with the people whom I am leading? It's great stuff. Well, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. And we will be back next Tuesday, continuing Nehemiah and the leadership process. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Scripture reading by Jason Germain. Jason Germain.